Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go and visit an orphanage in the capital of the Central American country, Honduras, in the city of Tegucigalpa. It's an amazing place. It's called El, Amor de, El Hogar de Amor y Esperanza. And it was founded by an Episcopal priest and his wife, who saw how difficult the situation was for so many young boys in Tegucigalpa. Many of them are simply abandoned by their families who don't have a way to take care of them. They turn to the streets and get involved in gangs, sniffing glue. It's a very hard life. El Hogar is a place of love and hope for those boys and also for their families. Many mothers who are at the end of their rope drop their boys off at the orphanage so that they can have a safe place to grow up, a place to go to school and a stable life, something that the mothers themselves are not able to provide. So, in other words, a gospel place, a beautiful place where you can see Christ at work. But the thing that I was told before I went was something a little bit different. Everyone warned me about the eggs. They said that every single morning for volunteers who were coming to visit, you would be served eggs. And the egg truck came every morning at about five to drop off eggs that were coming fresh from the countryside. And then the cooks in the kitchen would prepare them for the volunteers. It sounds really nice, right? So I didn't quite understand what the issue was. But it turns out that being force-fed eggs morning after morning is actually a real bummer. In the first couple mornings, I found it charming and delicious, and I enjoyed my scrambled eggs. Second morning was fine, too. By morning three, I found myself having heretical thoughts like, what about some toast or oatmeal or something like that? By day four, I had had it, and by seven and eight, the mere thought of eggs made me kind of want to hurl. It was really gross, and it took me weeks and weeks after I got back to the States to even think about eating any eggs. Today we hear the story of the Israelites who have just escaped from slavery in Egypt and found their freedom in a strange place, the Sinai Desert. Now, back in Egypt, even as difficult as their situation was, at the very least, their minimum requirements for life were fulfilled. They had enough to eat. And it sounds like the food was actually kind of decent. Here out in the wilderness, they had their freedom, that's for sure, but their stomachs were grumbling and they started to panic. We can't even eat. We have no place to sleep. What are we going to do? I don't know about you, but when I hear the story as recounted in the 16th chapter of Exodus today, it sounds a little judgmental of the Israelites, doesn't it? It sounds like they're grumbling against God who has just had this amazing miracle and delivered them into freedom, and who are they to speak out like this? But think about it from their perspective for just a second. They're really facing a crisis, and they've gone from one difficulty into another. Imagine you're a parent trying to make sure that your child is surviving this trauma and you don't even have enough to feed them. Of course they're upset. And they did the thing that they are supposed to do. They turned to God. And it turns out 
God provides. God says that each and every morning there will be some bread for them to eat, and they simply have to go out and gather it. On the sixth day, before the Sabbath, they should gather twice as much as they normally would. But beware, you've got to eat all that bread at once, because it doesn't really stick around, and it goes bad pretty easily. Of course, we know this bread as the manna from heaven in the old King James Version. And it sounds like a miracle. In actuality, there is a substance found on a certain type of bush in the Sinai Desert that is remarkably similar to what is described in the Bible. It's the byproduct of ants that eat some kind of leaf, and that doesn't sound very good, but apparently it tastes okay, and it's sugary, and you can live off of it if you're in kind of a pinch. So it's quite probable that the Israelites viewed this simple natural process as a miracle. And perhaps the Lord was simply opening their eyes to how they could subsist in a strange new land. Nonetheless, they are provided for. But still, it is a little gross. I mean, the thing that they're eating is basically like bug juice every single morning. That's not so nice. It's even worse than having to eat eggs every single day. So you can understand they're complaining as well. I think the thing that really stands out to me in this text, and always has, however, is God's insistence that the Israelites do this gathering each and every day. God promises them that they will not go hungry. God promises them daily bread. God doesn't really promise anything beyond that. God doesn't promise them a field full of wheat or a granary to store the fruit of their crop. God doesn't promise them a bakery or a distribution chain. God doesn't promise them bodegas. God doesn't promise them a toaster. Just bread, each and every day. There's a simplicity and a freedom to that type of wisdom, to that type of intimate relationship with our Creator, If you've ever attempted to live in a subsistence kind of way, day by day, living off the land or something else, you come to understand how different it feels. We live in a society that loves to plan, and there's really nothing wrong with that. The thought of simply planning to live day to day is actually something that is looked down upon, according to our value system. You need to plan for the future, have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, Have your retirement accounts. Make sure you're providing for yourself down the road. But there's something to Scripture reminding us, pulling us back to the everyday, to remind us that what we are actually promised in terms of our salvation in this life and the next is something that is daily, not something that is weekly or yearly or monthly. Think about Jesus. Jesus doesn't have any records whatsoever of him carrying around a lunchbox or having a bank account or doing anything to plan for the future. All of those things would have simply been an encumbrance to his ministry and antithetical to his mission of love that he was preaching to all people. 
anything else would have been a burden. Instead, he lived by the words that he taught. He lived day after day off the hospitality of strangers, providing miracles, not worrying about what the future will hold. And then, of course, he taught us this amazing prayer, which has become the most important one in our religion. And think for a moment about the words that you say when you say the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread. Not a retirement account. Our daily bread. That is how Jesus taught us to pray. Now, the fact of the matter is that living in the United States in 2023, the vast majority of us don't really have it as an option to go back to live the way that the Israelites were living day to day, hoping simply each day that God will provide for us. There are some brave souls out there who do practice that type of life. And then, of course, there are so many who are practicing it, but involuntarily. When you think about the influx of migrants who have come to the city, so many of whom we see on the streets and seek for ways to serve, they are living day by day simply by faith and hope. But for the rest of us, it's probably not really an option to go back to living that way. And certainly so many of us have built our lives around the principle of providing for ourselves and our loved ones in the future. So I wonder if there is a way to somehow synthesize our modern lives with the holy wisdom that we hear about in the book of Exodus and the way that Jesus teaches us to live. I wonder if there is a way for us to live in a way that is a kind of second naivete, mindful of the sophistication in which we live, yet also trying to incorporate what we know of from the Bible. I think there are ways to do this. First and foremost, as I said, there are people in our own society who live day to day, and they are for us Christians an example, an example of how to live in freedom. If you've ever spent time in a monastic community, for instance, you live for just a couple days or a week or so among people who have taken vows to live day by day. They are not concerned with storing up for the future for themselves, but rather they provide for the good of their entire community and the communities around them. And you can see how it changes the rhythm of life, how living a life unencumbered by all these things makes it more possible to focus on God and to put you in right relationship with the rest of creation. I think there's another way that we could think about the people who are the examples in our own society. Instead of viewing them as burdens or a crisis, we could instead look to their courage, their bravery, their ingenuity, the way that they manage to actually live in this city day to day, without any promise for what the future may hold. What an incredible example to the rest of us, as opposed to seeing it as a crisis that needs to be solved. Of course, we want to reach out to people in our community, and of course we want to help them, and we want the best for them. But at the same time, perhaps their presence is a lesson to us. 
But there is a second way. I believe that we can live a daily bread kind of life in a 401k world. And that is simply to follow the teachings of Jesus about how to be, how to be in right relationship with one another, with the things that we have, and most importantly, with the precious resource of time. He really tells us all how to do it. Live your life in gratitude. When you live in gratitude for the bread that you have, you don't have to worry about the meal that's coming the next day. You can simply concentrate on the blessing of what you have this day, and perhaps what you had the day before. Be generous with what you have. When you are generous with what you have, it makes you feel good, and it reminds you that the resources under your control are simply passing through you on their way to the next person or the next thing. Same as that manna that rains down from heaven. Whatever it is that we have in our possession, whether it's bread or something more complicated, it's only with us for a season, and it has an expiration date. Being generous reminds us of that and puts us in a healthier relationship with the things that we have. Jesus teaches us that we all belong to one another, and therefore we should think of what we have as something that we hold in common. And indeed, his first followers in the book of Acts took all of their possessions and put them into a pile and let the entire group divide them the way that they saw fit, making sure that those who had the least would have access to the most. It's still possible to practice this way of life today, simply by thinking of your neighbor as yourself, by thinking of the person in your community who is in the most material need as being the person who is the most deserving of some kind of help. All of these are ways that remind us, almost like the ancient memory that the book of Exodus is, of a wisdom and a way of life that comes from another time and place, and yet which we need so sorely and so dearly now, in a time when values like gratitude, generosity, and common life have gone behind the moon. I want to tell you a final story from my time in El Hogar. Once a week on Fridays, if there was a volunteer group that was visiting from abroad, and if the boys had acted well that week, and if the volunteer group saw fit to do it, there would be a pizza party. And let me tell you, I don't think I've ever seen a more joyful group of human beings than those boys when presented with a couple of pizzas. I think what made it all the more special for them was not really knowing if the pizza party would actually come or not. So it came as kind of a blessing, like a miracle, pizza from heaven for little boys who had so many things that were so difficult in their lives. That sense of gratitude, that sense of joy in something that is so simple, maybe to the rest of us, is holy. It comes from God. 
and it's available for each and every one of us to access. In just a moment, we will celebrate Holy Eucharist. It is bread from heaven, something that we come here each and every week to do. I advise you not to try to take the bread home with you just in case you're afraid it won't be here next week, because it will, and the week after that, and the week after that. And every time you come up to this altar to receive, you are living out your own prayer, praying for your daily bread, and the full and certain knowledge that God will always provide.